It's a privilege to open God's Word with you this morning. If you are here in the worship center or you're down in the gym, I would encourage you to take out your Bible or your electronic device or take out your worship folder where the text this morning is printed. As I am speaking to you, I want you to follow along because ultimately I want you to see and to hear what God has to say to you. So please uh, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 55. We're going to look at the whole chapter here. If you're here this morning and you don't normally read the Bible, the big verses, the big numbers are the chapter numbers and the small numbers are the verse numbers which I will be referring to. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Hear what God has to say. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I will make him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord our God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For the heavens are higher than the earth. So are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven, and do not return but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the hearer, so my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace, and the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead, the thorn shall, instead of the thorn shall come up cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Let's pray in preparation to hear God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can address you as a father. And as a father, you want us to know your good word for us. That you care about your children. So we pray that we would turn our attention to you. That we would listen to you during this time. That your word would come and would have an impact on our hearts and our minds and our lives. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. If you look in your worship folder, 
You see a lot of text because I want you to look at the text. You see a little space for notes and not too many quotes in there. I'm going to be quoting some things. And if you want to know where they come from or look at them, I'll put a blog up this week which gives you more directions for those things that aren't planted here in the worship folder. But today we just want to look at the text, hear what God is saying. Now I like stories about heroes. I think that a lot of people like stories about heroes. And William Tyndale is one of those heroes of Christian history. He was English, he was born in 1494, and he was ordained as a priest, and he joined the English Reformation. The idea that the gospel needed to proclaim, that we need to get back to the basic truth, that we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone, through grace alone. William Tyndale wanted to translate the Bible into English, but he was not allowed to by the powers that be in England at that time. So he left for Antwerp in Flanders, what today we call Belgium. And that area of the world was ruled by Spain at the time, which was a strong Catholic nation. During the time he was there, he spoke out against King Henry VIII's plans to get a divorce. So that put him on the list of criminals in England, even though he didn't live there. Now, the Spanish Inquisition broke out in Belgium. And in 1536, Tyndale was sentenced to death as a heretic. He was strangled and he was burned. Well, if that was the end of the story... William Tyndale would probably be unknown today. Christian colleges, seminaries, and Christian book publishers would not be named after him. But that wasn't the end of the story. Today, in Belgium, less than one-third percent of Belgians are evangelical Christians. So his death as a martyr did not further the Reformation in Belgium. But something else happened. William Tyndale's English translation of the Bible began circulated in England the year of his death. Henry VIII came across it and not knowing it was William Tyndale's proclaimed, in God's name let it go out among the people. That English translation of the Bible, God's word going out in a language that the people could read, fueled the English Reformation. You see, God uses his ordinary means of grace to accomplish extraordinary things. He did it in Tyndale's time, he's doing it today. And this morning, I want you to observe from the text three statements that God makes in Isaiah 55 in support of that big idea. Let's begin here. We start off in verses 1 through 5 with a statement of invitation. Summed up in verse 3. Hear that your soul may live. Now, we're looking at Hebrew poetry here. English poetry focuses on rhyme and rhythm. Hebrew poetry focuses on the repetition of ideas in words and phrases. 
sometimes the same idea, sometimes the, a contrast of ideas, sometimes comparison, one thing to another, but it's all the repetition of ideas. And we've got a lot of repetition here right in the beginning. It begins, come, four times in verse 1, we see that invitation. Come, once more for good measure in verse 3. Do you see that? This word indicates movement. Leave where you are and draw near to me. Now let's be clear about who's speaking here. Look at this phrase in verse 3. And I will make you, with you, an everlasting covenant. Who's speaking here? God's speaking. Because God is the only one who can make an everlasting covenant. This is one of those places in the Bible where the words of God are plainly and clearly proclaimed by his prophet. So who is invited? Well, we see two groups of people. In verse 1, we see those who have nothing. Those who thirst those who are hungry, those who have no money. In verse 2, we see those who have much. Those who strive, those who achieve, and yet they're still not satisfied. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for what does not satisfy? And we need to take a moment here. We've seen the invitation, the invitation to come. We've seen who it's given to. God gives the invitation. But to understand this better, we need to understand the context of Isaiah. Okay? And here's the main theme of Isaiah. Rebels get God's grace. Rebels get God's grace. Now let's see where this fits into the whole Old Testament picture. Quick Old Testament history. God created the world. God created human beings. The first two humans, Adam and Eve, rebelled against him. They disobeyed. They were cut off from the fellowship from God that they had. But right in that beginning story of Adam and Eve, God very subtly begins to point towards Jesus as the answer. And the whole Old Testament is always pointing us towards Jesus. And so we jump to Genesis chapter 12. And a man named Abraham, and God calls Abraham. And at that point, God begins to work through a people. His family. This goes on for the rest of the Bible. It goes on to eternity. We're part of that family if we're Christians. In Abraham's case, it was a physical family. In our case, it's a spiritual family. In Abraham's case, it was a spiritual family as well. And that spiritual family is every bit as real as a physical family. So we jump forward. Abraham's family, in the beginning of the book of Exodus, had grown to more than a million and a half people who were brutally oppressed slaves in Egypt. God redeemed them through a miraculous event at the Red Sea. He let them wander around for 40 years. And then we get to the book of Joshua. They came into the promised land that God had promised to Abraham, and they began to conquer it. We jump forward, and there was a good king. His name was David. 
He had a son named Solomon. This people was a nation and this nation was at their height politically. Everything was good or mostly good in Israel. Solomon started off really, really well. He asked for wisdom. But at the end of Solomon's life, what's recorded is that he had ignored the instructions for kings that God gave way back in the book of Deuteronomy. And he had acquired for himself many horses, much money, and many wives. Solomon did not finish well. Because of that, we move into the books of the kings and the chronicles. And Israel is now two nations, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. If you read those book, all books, all the kings in the, the northern kingdom were bad kings and did evil. Easy summary. In the southern kingdom, they were a mixed bag. There were kings who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Eventually, because of the dis disobedience of the northern kingdom, God sent Assyria, and Assyria conquered them, and they were carried away. And that's the point we're at now. All that's left is that southern kingdom, Judah. Isaiah is prophesying. The people, in verse 1, are described this way. This is God speaking. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Verse 4, they have forsaken the Lord and they have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. You see, they watched what went on in the northern kingdom and they thought it wasn't going to apply to them. So Isaiah comes on the scene. He begins to warn them. He begins to warn these rebels. And Isaiah is broken into three sections. The first section in verses 1 through 39 is really addressed to those people eight centuries before the time of Jesus. The people where, that are living when Isaiah was living. And yet because this is a vision, God can say other things too. So the second section of the book in verses 40 through 55, our chapter today, talks about a people two centuries later who would be in captivity in Babylonia. That the southern kingdom would experience the exact same thing the northern kingdom had experienced 200 years before. And then the third part of the book is really focused on all people of all times to the end. But like all of God's word, the whole book has applications for us here today. So Isaiah in chapter 55, the people who would read this 200 years after he wrote it were people in captivity. And in chapter 54, right before this chapter, there's talk of God compassionately gathering his people together and doing good for them for his purposes. So God invites them. He says, come. He says that to those who have nothing and those who have much. 
Those who have much, it says, they labor for that does that which does not satisfy. Now, I have a description of that. I'm sorry if I step on some toes and I live in this town too and this applies to me. That's my pleasant. I have a friend who's a banker and he recently shared with me that Mount Pleasant has the highest median income in the state of South Carolina and the highest credit card debt. We labor for that which does not satisfy. And the reality is, although we may be in that second group of, the people, of people, if that's what we're doing, we're also in the first group of people. We're hungry and thirsting for that which really satisfied. And what does God offer? He offers them water, which is life itself. He offers them wine, and we certainly see in the Bible the cautions against too much wine and drunkenness, but we also see in the Bible that wine is awful, an awful lot of the time equated with joy. And he offers them milk. Milk is nourishment. In the New Testament, the Word of God and the nourishment it brings is equated with milk. So God offers water, life, wine, joy, and milk. But He invites them to something. You see, God is inviting them to a feast here. Where do I get that? Delight yourself in rich food, verse 2. Because you have, to, you have to understand that people living in the ancient Near East at this time did not get to eat rich food on a daily basis. Their diet was very meager and very dependent on the conditions that were going on around them on any given day. Very simple. Do you know what? What we eat on a daily basis, they would see as a feast. Maybe not in quantity, but certainly in quality and variety. So God's inviting them to a feast, and he's inviting them to a royal feast because God the king is doing the invitation. But something very interesting happens here. Because God all of a sudden changes up the imagery from an invitation to a feast to something else. He begins to mix his metaphor. Look at here. Listen diligently in the second half of verse 2. And eat what is good. To eat, you must listen. Incline your ear. Come to me. And then here's the punchline. Hear that your soul may live. See, ultimately what God's inviting them to is not simply physical life. He's inviting them to spiritual life. And he's saying you live spiritually by listening to me. Now let's jump back to the people who were reading this who were captives in Babylon. Because... In, in God inviting them to a feast, they see a certain answer to their predicament here. He says, hear that your soul may live. Be spiritually alive. And then there's a connecting word, and. 
I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. God had promised to David that there would always be a king on the throne of David in Israel. And so when those first, those readers who were reading this in in Babylonia heard this, what they're hearing is, we are invited to a feast, and that feast will be in Jerusalem. God is going to keep his promises to our good king. We are going back to being important in the future. I want to explain something to you that may help your Bible study, and it's a concept called the prophetic echo, or near-far prophecy is another name for it, or already but not yet. You see, what God does in the Bible, and this is so great, that's why it's really good to read the Bible and get to know the Bible. He would often make promises to a group of people, and he would keep that promise. He's making this promise to the people in Babylonia, and he kept this promise. When they got back to Jerusalem in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, when the temple was rebuilt and the walls of the city were rebuilt, they're going, wow, isn't it great that God keeps his promises? And we can read about that stuff, and you know what we should say? Isn't it great that God keeps his promises? But they were back in Jerusalem, only the promise wasn't completely fulfilled. They continued to be ruled by the other nations. A descendant of David, a good king, was not on the throne. And for 500 years they were in that state until we get to the beginning of the book of Matthew and it talks about Jesus And it lists Jesus' genealogy and it says that he is a descendant of Abraham and a descendant of David. This is that prophetic echo. God kept his promises to them, but there was a greater promise to come. So as we read this, what we have to understand is that we too are invited to a feast. We are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Where we, the church, the bride... We'll feast with the bridegroom in the new Jerusalem, in the new heaven and earth forever. So we have an invitation. The second thing I want you to observe is a statement of application. And that's summed up in some figurative language in verse 10 giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So let's look at verses 6 through 11 here. It begins, Seek the Lord that he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. You see, this invitation that God is giving is not like a coupon from Bed Bath & Beyond. I know some of you women know what I mean because my wife always reminds me of this. When you go to Bed Bath & Beyond, bring your coupon with you. Honey, you gave me this coupon, but it's expired. Don't worry. Bed Bath & Beyond will take the coupon even though it has expired. 
What God is saying here is this invitation will not go on forever. Now, Israel should have known about this. The first readers of this in Isaiah's time, they weren't listening to Isaiah that something bad could happen to them, and they should have known better because of what happened to the Assyrians. The second readers should have known, the readers that read this in Babylonia should have known that invitations don't go on forever because the prophet Jeremiah told them over and over again, repent, turn back to the Lord, or you're going to be conquered by the Babylonians. And you know what? They were so thick-skinned and so rebellious, and their the, the prophets they gathered for them kept saying, peace, peace, while there is no peace, that God allowed the Babylonians to conquer them in stages, and they still didn't listen to Jeremiah when some of their people were already carried away. So God is saying, if our souls are to live, we have to seek him. And we have to seek him now in the opportune moment. This seeking involves a change of direction. Verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon him. If you're here this morning, and you're not a Christian. Now, how do I define Christian? We see that a few chapters before, actually, in a prophecy in Isaiah 53. It says we've all rebelled against God. It describes us as sheep who have gone our own way. But it says that God laid our sin on Jesus Christ on the cross in Isaiah 53. It's a prophecy about what's going to happen And this morning, if you will repent of your sin, admit that you are a sinner, and believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and that he rose from the dead in a demonstration that that power is applied to your life, you can be saved. It says that God will abundantly pardon your sins. But for those of you who, that, who know Christ, let's keep on in the passage here. Okay? We need to seek him while he may be found, and then we have a connecting word. Why? Why do we need to seek God? Why does our soul live when we listen to him? Here's why. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord in verse 8. Verse 9, for the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are your thoughts. Now I want to confess here, and I think I've done this here in East Cooper Baptist Church in a Sunday morning Bible class when I was looking at some notes recently. I've misused these two verses in the past. Because I saw these verses similar to what it says in Deuteronomy 8. In Deuteronomy 8, it says the secret things belong to God. There's things about an infinite God that we as finite human beings don't know. I always put it this way. 
God doesn't tell us everything we want to know him about him, but everything we need to know about him. That's not what this is saying. What this is saying that we think differently than God. That we need to seek him and we need to seek him now because we are masters of self-deception. I was recently listening to a show on National Public Radio, This American Life, and the episode was called, Is This What I Look Like? And the subtitle was, Stories of Seeing Yourself Through Other People's Eyes, Whether You Want to or Not. What this verse is saying is God wants us to see him through his eyes, not ours. And we see him through his eyes when we listen to his word, when we read his word, when we hear his word taught. Then we have another connecting word in verse 10, 4. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So here we have an illustration from nature. And again, what did they hear, the people living in the ancient Near East, when they heard this? They knew exactly what God was talking about. You see, there weren't a lot of streams, there weren't a lot of lakes in Israel, and they were dependent on the rain for life itself. And they understood that it was pretty amazing that rain happened. They didn't know all the science behind it, but they knew that something special was going on because the sky was blue, their crops were starting to dry up, and then rain came. Job says that rain is a wonder of God. It tells us something majestic about him. Andy Davis, who's a pastor in Durham, South Carolina, recently uh, I was listening to a meditation he did on that verse in Job, and he was talking about the wonder of rain. Andy Davis went to MIT, so he explained a lot of things that I can't. But basically there was this idea, one inch of rain that covers one square mile weighs 1.6 billion tons. So we got one square mile in ancient Israel. The skies are blue. How does it get there? Well, a couple hundred miles out into the Mediterranean Sea, water evaporates. That water evaporates. And the amazing thing is that when it evaporates, again, I don't know how this happens, but the salt doesn't go up into the air with it. Because if the salt went up into the air with it, it would kill all the crops when it came down. That 1.6 billion tons of water moves a few hundred miles over ancient Israel. And that evaporated water begins to collect around little dust particles. And it becomes drops of just the right size. Because if they were too small, they'd break apart as they fell. And if they were too large, they'd kill all the crops. 
And so what God is saying here is that rain accomplishes something. It says in verse 10, it gives seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Now that first part, seed, is very, very important. Because we don't eat seed, but seed is the mechanism which keeps things going. And then it gives bread, which we do need. And so you have this wonderful illustration. But he goes on, and in verse 11 he begins, So shall, another one of those connecting words. Now he's going to compare that marvelous miracle of rain and all it accomplishes, and they had no doubt it accomplished something, because when rain came down, things grew and turned green. And he says this, so shall my word do the same thing the rain does. The word that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing which I sent it. So earlier on, when God is saying, hear that your soul may live, listen to me, Listen to what I have to say, not just what he's saying here, but in this whole book. He's saying it will accomplish what I designed it to accomplish. It always succeeds. Now, I know people that will question that. Let's start in the beginning of the Bible. God created the earth through his word. Eight times in Genesis 1, it says, and God said, and each time it's followed by, and it was so, or some variation. Not only does God's word create the universe and all that's in it, but God's word brings about the new creation of salvation in our life. We who were dead now live. In Romans 10, it says we cannot come to faith in Jesus Christ without God's word being spoken. Not only that, but God's word transforms us. It brings about the process of sanctification in our life. In Romans 12.1 and Ephesians 4.22 through 24, it talks about that transformation in Romans from being conformed to the world to not being conformed to the world. And in Ephesians, it talks about that transformation in terms of putting off the old man and putting on the new man. And both of this says the way that happens is when our minds are renewed by the word of God. But you say, Andy, always succeeds. I know people who have heard the gospel from the scriptures. They have not come to faith in Christ. Andy, always succeeds. I've sat under teaching of the word, and quite honestly, it doesn't do much for me. It's sort of boring. Here's why it always succeeds. When you hear God's word, you're going to decide whether you are attracted to it or whether you're going to rebel against it. God is accomplishing his purposes. We don't know how all that works out, but he's accomplishing his purposes. Recently, Pastor Buster has talked about the place that we find ourselves in our country and culture today. I've appreciated 
his honesty, his lack of being an alarmist, but also his clarity. And he said that there's storm clouds on the horizon. And Buster said a few months ago that he has never seen the storm clouds as dark as they are today. On June 28th, he made this statement, it is going to take tremendous courage to live for Christ in the coming decades. So how do we live? What do we need if we're going to live in those storms? Well, fortunately, the Bible addresses that. Jesus addresses that in Matthew chapter 7, 7, 24 through 27. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now, most immediately there, that was at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was talking about listening to the words in the Sermon on the Mount. But the thing about the Sermon on the, on the Mount is that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was answering the Jews of his day and clarifying what they already knew from the Old Testament in much of the Sermon on the Mount. And also in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus declares that all of the Old Testament scriptures, and I believe we can say the New Testament scriptures, are authoritative and still God's word. And the coming of Jesus didn't cancel that out. So Jesus is saying, you want to survive the storm? Build your life on the Word of God. Now we need to wrap up here, but just let me say this. That in our church, and not just at East Cooper, in other churches like ours, we have a problem. And this problem has been written about. And I don't think the people are writing wrongly. I think they're, they're accurate. The problem we have among people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ today is a high degree of biblical illiteracy. We don't know what's in the Bible and we don't have an accurate, of God, accurate understanding of who God is, what he's done for us, and what our lives should look like because we don't know what's in the Bible. I read an article by a man, and his name was Ken Birding. He teaches at Biola University in California, and he was talking about biblical illiteracy. And he, this article was called The Crisis of Biblical Illiteracy. And he said there's four reasons which we have for biblical illiteracy in the church. Distractions, misplaced priorities, unwanted overconfidence, and the pretext of being too busy. 
I think all of those are true. But I want to focus in on one in particular as we conclude here. Unwanted overconfidence. And what he described that is relying on the passive learning of our past to accomplish what God wants to do today. We can't do that. I see this in our church. I have people and they'll come and talk to me and they'll say, Pastor, I'd like you to do a class on this topic in our Sunday morning Bible classes. Most often it's related to marriage and family. We offer classes on that. Those are good classes to have. Just last Saturday, we gave all morning to a relationship seminar. And I say, well, we're not going to have a class on that right now. But we'll have one in the future. But right now, we've got some great teachers, and many of them teach through books of the Bible. And if you don't want that, we have some good classes in things like Introduction to the Old Testament and the New Testament, which will help you understand the Bible. And people I've, had people, I've had people say this to me in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, not too many in their 60s. But Andy, I'm not interested in any of those other classes because I know all that stuff. Now the first thing I want to do is take two steps back, three, four, maybe. I don't want to get hit by the lightning. <laughs> Thankfully, God is gracious. But here's why that answer doesn't work. And I'm going to use an illustration from my own life, but understand, my own life is only the life it is because of the grace of God in my life. None of anything I share is because of me. It's because God has done it. And I grew up in a Christian home. I didn't ask to be born into that home. They took me to good churches. For 10 years before I went to seminary, my wife and I went to churches where the pastor preached through books of the Bible and we went to good Sunday school classes where they taught us the Bible. And I went off to seminary and studied full-time and learned all that seminary stuff. And when I was in seminary, I started reading through the Bible with a one-year Bible. And so since the time I've been in seminary, I've, I've probably read through the whole Bible, including other reasons, 30 to 40 times. And since that time, I still sit under the teaching of, of people who teach the Word of God. By that thing of that person telling me, I don't need to learn the Bible because I know all that already. Well, then what does that say about what God's done in my life and what he's taught me? I don't need to come and listen to Buster preach on Sundays. And I certainly can't learn anything when I sit in adult Sunday morning Bible classes and listen to my teachers. No. I have never sat in a class here with any of our teachers where I haven't walked out of that class having learned something. People we don't know at all. I don't know at all. Every morning when I read the Bible, I go, I know so little about this. I want to know more. And it's not just us as adults. Parents... Your children need to know their Bibles. It's the only thing that's going to change them from the inside out in the days to come. They're not going to be able to stand up against the tide of our culture because you've told them about one verse in Leviticus. And 
Parents, if you're here this morning and you don't understand the difference between kids' church and children's Bible class, our children need both of them. Kids' church is large group. Steve Tuck, our children's pastor, does a great job. The content in there is excellent. But Sunday morning children's Bible classes are where our children at the 9.30 hour bring their Bibles, hopefully, if you send them with them, they open their Bibles. They're in a small group with teachers who help them to begin to read the Word for themselves, to follow along. Our children need that. Your children do. My children are all grown. My grandchildren will need that. Okay. Finish up here. We finish up with a state, statement of outcome. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. It's in verses 12 and 13, but I want you to see this. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. If God's word accomplishes its purposes, the original people who read this in Babylonia had the promise that they were going to go home to their land. And you know what? God kept that promise. And so today he's saying to you, if you will hear me, if you will listen to me, if you will listen diligently, diligently, if you will truly believe that my word is like the good rain in your life to bring about spiritual life, joy, and, and health and nourishment, you have a good outcome. Just like the Israelites that I took out of captivity in Babylonia and brought them back to the promised land. Marvelous things are going to happen. The mountains are going to break out into singing. The trees of the field shall clap their hands. This is symbolic language about something wonderful happening. And look at this in verse 13. Instead, the thorn shall come up with the cypress and the briar shall come up with the myrtle. Do you know what that is? That's a reverse of the curse of sin in Genesis 3, 17 and 18. God told Adam and Eve, because you've sinned, your work, and in an agrarian society, their work was their life, your life is going to be filled with thorns and hardship. God's word can reverse, can, can reverse that. The Bible has changed my life and it is changing my life. John Piper has this to say in conclusion. He says, If you will give yourself to the whole Bible for your whole life, he's talking about himself here, I promise you, you will arrive at the fullest possible understanding of reality. Over time, I'm saying this convictionally about the nature of the Bible and I'm saying it experientially about my life. If you stay with it, I don't think you will regret it. People, I know that some of you right now have been living in a spiritual slump or a spiritual drought because you haven't been standing in the rain of God's Word. Please stand in the rain. Let's pray.
Lord, I got to start here. You know that in the not too distant past, that I went through some dry days. I was in that slump. I wasn't standing in that reign of the word, your word, like I should, but it's easy to go through the motions when you're a pastor. And I listened to you, and you refreshed my soul with water and wine and milk. Lord, I pray for these people here. I pray that their souls would be refreshed by your word, that they would get in the reign of your word, both by sitting under the teaching of others and by reading it themselves. Lord, I pray that they would see evidence of the power of your word in their life and, the word and their lives of those around them. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.